Welcome to episode number 86 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about lessons learned from a corn milling explosion. To do that, we have on the call Rick Smith. Rick, thanks for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. Look forward to our discussion. So Rick has a background starting in healthcare. He moved into the the EHS world, the environmental health and safety world, for about 13 years after that, or over 13 years after that. Um, and a big chunk of that was at a, a milling facility, and in particular managing their combustible dust safety programs. He reached out to me. We were talking kind of back and forth about his experience from the inside, working in a facility, working in EHS, and really you know learning from things that were happening in the facility and implementing safety solutions. I want to get him on the podcast because this is an important topic. We do get a lot of, I'll say, outside looking in perspective, a lot of consultants, a lot of experts, a lot of researchers, a lot of equipment providers talking about how to implement these systems safely, but it's harder to get that inside perspective. So I really appreciate Rick coming on, sharing that. I think it's going to make for uh, something really interesting for the listeners, for you that are tuning in your cars on your way to work or tuning into the show from your computers. So I hope you find it interesting. In this episode, we're going to talk through what led up to and cause this incident. We're going to talk about what are some of the outcomes and lessons learned um, and how did Rick and his team go about implementing improvements and, and what did that look like. So Rick, maybe a good place to start off is, can you just give us some of your, your background and how you ended up moving into EHS and then to specializing in combustible dust? Um, yeah, so I first started out, as you said, in healthcare. I spent 10 years as a registered nurse in the emergency care unit and then three years in intensive care. Uh, while I was working in the emergency room, the, the way my schedule worked out, I was able to, every, every three weeks I had eight days off. So with that being said, I always tried to find some extra jobs or that would help advance my career. And because eventually as a nurse, there's a point where bedside lifting, pac- lifting patients, the sudden reaction is just not good on the body. Nursing ergonomics is is pretty hazardous, and invariably somebody is probably going to shorten their career when we're lifting patients. And that was I was unfortunately kind of a victim of that. So I had to go and look for what else could I be doing. And my my personal goal was how can I make it the greatest impact for fill in the blank. I wasn't quite sure what that was. So I dabbled in some occupational clinics. Uh, then I got a parallel, paralegal degree and helped out some attorneys for a while. Um, none of those were what I call the aha moment. Uh, but what was was when I took a part-time job at auto manufacturing facility and worked there for about four years in their occupational clinic, which then also we started doing safety walks. And the combination of the safety and the health was, was really what intrigued me and interest, interested me. Moving forward, I got a, um, a job at an occupational, as an occupational health nurse at a food manufacturing facility. Uh, that unfortunately, that plant was a victim of merging and they closed, uh, but that opened my doors up to a bigger, broader picture of covering offices throughout the United States and Canada. And that got me some more exposure into the safety world. And that's where I ended up getting a safety degree. And with that being a remote and telephonic type facility, I really want to get back into more of the face-to-face with, with folks. And so I, I 
was able to get a job back into the food manufacturing, which was the corn milling facility. And with that, that's where I took on the EHS role because I had my undergrad, my bachelor's degree at that point. So working there for about seven years, that's that's where the my interest grew in the combustible dust awareness. And um, I think that's where, where we're at. I've really spent a lot of time on, on what does it mean to be pro- proactive and help being preventable, I guess. But also when we had a close call, nobody got hurt, but we did have an, an event and we damaged some product, which took us out of service for uh, several months. But fortunately, we were able to bring it back up rather rapidly, but we did a lot of learning and I think that's where, you know, where we're going to be headed with this discussion. Yeah. And as I mentioned in the outset, I appreciate you taking the time to, to go through this because um, I think it's going to be really helpful for the audience to have this perspective. I did before we kind of went into the the incident that I know we do we do have health and safety managers that are tuning into the podcast and if they're tuning in this podcast they're probably interested in combustible dust at least can you give any thoughts on how if they want to learn more or they want to move into um, specializing in combustible dust and their current roles maybe aren't quite aligned with that like how how did you end up making that transition from just EHS to, to also you know working and focusing more on combustible dust. It might be interesting for someone that's listening in, in that role. I believe that some of the, the most valuable resources are some of the professional magazines. They've got uh, some good information like the ASSP resources. There's also the National Fire Protection Association has several standards that fall into play. And I'm sure we've, we all know these or know a majority of them particularly when you're talking about 61, 652, 654s, et cetera. And then there's also now one that's getting more common or more popular because of the recommendations from NFPA is the 652, which is the dust hazard analysis. Uh, when you look at OSHA, they don't have the specific standard, as we all know. Uh, they have a national emphasis program, and so reviewing some of those standards will help with the events. Um, your website has a plethora of information, and then I think the, a really good learning tool is the CSB boards e- events, where you can look back and see what they're, what they've investigated, what they found as root causes, and what kind of uh, corrective action recommendations they would have. And, you know, the substance of that being in the foundation being the Pentagon. So when we build upon those factors and then see how they apply to operations within each, uh, which within each fil- uh, facility, we have to keep in mind is the finer the dust, the more explosive it is. And so that's, that I think takes the priority of how do you control the events. No, that makes sense to me. And so, you mentioned a couple of resources there, the American Society for Safety Professionals, the um, National Safety Council, and NSC, NFPA, obviously the, the standards and regulations and engineering guidelines they have, um, OSHA's National Emphasis Program, the Chemical Safety Board reports are really good. They're, they're big and, and long too. They're, you can really dig into them. They also have some really nice videos um, that are, are quite helpful. So I, I, we hadn't planned on going and talking about that, but I thought that might be of interest 
of sort of a, a range of things that somebody that's uh, EHS manager and want to learn more to, to learn about. So I appreciate you sharing some of those. In terms of the the, the uh, explosion or the incident that we that we talked about before uh, getting on the call at your facility, can you just kind of walk us through from the the investigation, the work that you guys did, what what uh, happened leading up to that incident? Yeah, so the facility was undergoing a a major transformation from a semi-automatic mode, what we'll call relay logic controls, where the operations to start up and, and stop equipment had to go through a series of events for or a series of operations where you would turn some on, go check the equipment to get it turned back on. Then once that was satisfactorily running, then you would go to the next bank. And there's about five banks of, of controls that would require switching on the equipment in a series. So that was back from 1970 era. We're trying to uh, automate this process where we have more controls, we have more uh, programmable logic, the PLCs, uh, more computer, computerized to make it more efficient. So undergoing a major transformation, call it a process safety management improvement, where it took um, about eight months to go from where it was to the automated mode. Leading up to the event, there we had just started going live and commissioning the majority of the equipment. Now, a lot of it wasn't, there wasn't any new equipment being installed. It was just the electronics and remapping of electrical controls to the motor switches, et cetera. And there was what we found or what, what we were, some of the issues we found is that we were using old diagrams. They weren't updated. Um, we were doing some as-built diagrams and not having a lot of process safety uh, management change discussions. So the, the discussions were pretty limited. They stayed within the maintenance and the project manager and uh, a little bit of discussion with the, uh, the mill manager at the time. But then that, what we found is that that communication wasn't disseminated, wasn't shared as freely as it was, and there wasn't really a lot of training. Monday morning quarterback, we find this out because on the day of the event, this was a third time that we had a sudden shutdown of power from a breaker being overloaded. And we found that instead of, we had two main large uh, high voltage breakers set up in an electrical room and they could have and should have been shared 50-50 or 60-40 type uh, percentage wise on, on redesigning the electrical. Instead, we did a 90%, 10%. The 90% overload on the breaker shut down 90% of the equipment. We had, still had 10% running. And so the way the operations work is there's a primary fan that acts as a vacuum on one side of it and suspends the product and throughout the ductwork and the milling operations and, 
and drying it and grinding it and cooling it down. Then there's on the other side of that, it acts as, as a blower. So then waste product is just going through the ductwork. That blower, it go, sends it to a, a processing equipment that help dries it out and whatever that, that particular product is on the blowing side of it, that is trash and that gets sent on to be processed in, in another area. The power distribution did not shut down the uh, what we call our flash dryer, which is a natural gas system. Um, it also did not shut down what we call a steeping screw that was feeding corn into a hammer mill, which acts as a grinder. And it starts to pulverize the corn into a real fine powder. And when the power shut down on 90% of it, the flash dryer and the steeping screw were still feeding into the hammer mill. And what we determined, and if you could envision with us here, is that we are creating a charcoal grill into this hammer mill chamber that is no longer working. But at right before the power shut off, we had fine powder being suspended, a sudden loss of uh, power to that. The operations then dropped any suspended particles, about 5,000 pounds an hour of real fine powder from a vertical four stories up all the way and just let that stuff fall down throughout the ductwork and back into this hammer mill. Of course, overflowing it and, and just you know creating a, a, a big mess, but yet we're still trying to feed stuff into that. We're still trying to dry it because the 680 degrees is, is putting direct flame into that, into that area. So when the power was shut off, the operator immediately called maintenance and the maintenance staff were familiar with it because we had two other sudden sh shutdowns of power within in the previous 24 hours. This was the first time that this operator had been exposed to this new, newly automated system. And we went from the manual turning of the mode of the, of the switches to an automated computer screen and that was the transition that was explained to me of how the operator, he got about a 15, 20 minute orientation to say, okay, instead of doing this to turn the primary fan on, all you do is hit the button. And if the system goes down and you're in an alarm or it, it shuts down, all you have to do is enable the button. So when he called the maintenance staff, they had walked across the building and they were able to enter into the, the area in the electrical room. They knew where to re-engage the breaker. They flipped the breaker over and then they radioed to the operator and said, hey, you're good. We restored your power. Um, go ahead and fire her up. The standard operating procedure should say that make sure if you have loss of power, if you have an unexpected shutdown, you have any um, situations like what we're experiencing, the previous S um, SOP, standard operating procedure, said verify that you don't have burning embers or burning corn, and the verification was through a visualization port or it was uh, using the senses. We all know that there's a uh, distinct burning corn smell when when you do have when you have burning corn. Um, none of that was done. The breaker re, uh, being switched over to normal operations took about 12 minutes. 
As soon as the maintenance guys told him that he was ready to go, the operator went into the control room, hit the enable, rearm, power up sequence, and within five to 10 seconds, the primary fan that was aspirating or sucking up the product through the ductwork also brought the embers with it. We had flash fires, then we had um, a few explosions that were the internally housekeeping of the of the equipment, the flash fires and the explosions were all very minor perspective to what we've seen other facilities. Um, they did the damage about five pieces of equipment that's vital to the operations. There were some inspection ports that were blown off from ductwork that if there was anybody in the area, those could have been potentially fatal. But the integrity of the building stayed intact. Um, there was enough percussion that it blew out windows. And um, so after that, then we did start doing our deep dive analysis. So, yeah, I'm going to try to unwrap some of the pieces there because that was um, a lot of information. I appreciate. Sorry about that. No, that's no, that's, I, I have it all recorded here. So we're going to, we're going to walk through and, and take it piece by piece. So the first kind of piece, I just want to talk a bit and make sure I have the line right and the operation right. And then sort of what happened when the power went off. So it sounds like we had a, a dryer, a flash dryer that was connected to a hammer mill using a steeping screw to dry the material, then to grind it. Um, you mentioned that down the line it's cooled. And they had a fan pulling a vacuum to to pull the the material through all the, the duct work. When the power shut off, and you, you, I think you said it was a 90-10, so 10% of the equipment stayed on and, and 90 shut off. And the ones that stayed on were the, the flash dryer and the steeping screw. So then you have that feeding into the hammer mill, which is off, but you also have the the vertical line or the line that's um, at a at a uh, a vertical incline from the hammer mill feeding all that material back because the fan's off, so it's not being pulled through and the vacuum's lost. So you kind of have the hammer mill being filled from both sides with the material, both the the grinded material that's already in the downstream ducting, and then also the upstream from the flash dryer with the steeping screw. Did I miss anything in that description? No, that's that's good. That's accurate. Okay, I drew a picture when you said it, so I was just saying what the picture was, and I thought the audience might help being visualized visualizing that again. <laughs> so that's what happened, and then the the difficulty. And we've actually seen this sort of thing a, a couple times on the podcast and previous episodes. Is when the system is turned back on, you're at a heightened risk level. Because you have these sort of conditions that are not normal. It's not normal to have no vacuum and have material feeding the reverse way in the line. That's not normal to have the steeping screw turn on with the hammer mill and that sort of thing. And I like the way you laid it out with the standard operating procedure. So the power shut off. So the maintenance team went down, investigated, turned the power back on. Um, and you mentioned there should have been a step of verifying both using sense like uh, smell and, and touch but also going to the inspection ports and viewing the inspection ports before, probably before turning the power on, but um, you know, before at least turning the fan on and, and kind of sucking material through the system, um, that kind of didn't didn't happen, or at least didn't happen to enough degree to to avoid what what happened after that. Uh, once the system was turned back on, then those burning embers, wherever they were, got sucked into the ducting um, and and then started igniting flash fires and deflagrations um, and causing explosions some of the equipment does that sound like the the process did i miss anything on on we'll say the incident sequence then 
Yeah, that's that's accurate. And so what I often tell our folks in our plant and I'm, we do some new hire training, envision it being a charcoal grill. And then we just blew on the charcoal grill with a big whiff of uh, or blow of you know air or we blew on those to to um, ramp up the flame on your charcoal grill. But instead, you know, we have a lot more air applied to it. And, you know, we've all grilled before and you see all, you know, you get a few escapes of embers from the charcoal when more oxygen is added to it. So, yeah, it's the same as if you're trying to start a, a fire. You want to use kindling, not big logs. It's the finer the material, the easier it burns. Then you want to oxygenate it. So if you blow on the fire, you get burning more and then you can even get those embers kind of burning off as you're, you're blowing across it. Okay, so we have the idea of what the equipment was like, the upset condition, the incident sequence that ensued afterwards. We even taking a step back from what were the main outcomes. I mean, this might have, must have been quite shocking to have, you know, a large incident, a large event uh, at the facility. What were some of the first steps into? Uh, I assume first step one is to make sure everyone's safe. <laughs> but you know, can you just talk us through what the you know what happened afterwards? Um, and I'm hoping that others that experience this then at least have some kind of reference point about what uh, you and your team did. Yeah. So the, the incident where the location or the floor where, where it occurred, there was not anybody working on there. The time of the sequence, uh, I guess that was kind of on our side too, because it happened at four 30 in the morning where there was limited people in the building. So as soon as it went off, the first the first action was our emergency action procedures is to verify life safety. Was there still flames? The I guess the fortunate thing for this is that our external housekeeping, anything surrounding the uh, equipment and on floors and you know the fugitive dust and stuff, those were all well contained. And so the the explosions that occurred were all within internally with with the ductwork so there was a big flash ball though big enough that our security guards saw it about on the on the uh, eastern part of the property and saw the ball of flame heard the heard the booms but then after that it's all it all went away so it ended up being more of a flash fire as opposed to secondary explosions uh, within you know uh combustible dust or i mean um combustible materials so there wasn't insulation for it to catch on catch on fire and the, the nature of the the building structure is there it's a big room so it has a lot of ventilation and with that being said i don't i think we have a lot of the confinement where that's when the secondary explosions blow out walls so it did impact about four pieces of vital of the equipment and knocked them down, shut them down right away. Of course, all the power was was shut off. Um, so life safety first, fire department on call. They, once we determined that they there wasn't any continued flames, the fire department called off. And then just more enacting of what are we what are we doing emergently? Make sure we had electricity turned off, gas turned off, um, water was. Um, the uh, water valves were turned off, so all the utility pieces of of that came into play, and then just started doing an assessment once 
like I said, you know, this happened 5.30 in the morning. I think the majority of us got up there by 7, and we started doing our, our game planning, game scheming to figure out how are we going to determine what the extent of damages were, and then moving forward, what do we need to do? Yeah, so let's let's talk through a bit of that. What From that investigation process, um, what were some of the main takeaways, and, and we'll, we'll call them lessons learned from the incident? Part of that is... I guess just refreshing the emergency action procedures is making sure that our folks knew where the exit routes were. If we were going to evacuate, which we did, that was lessons learned. We made sure that we had fire drills again shortly thereafter this incident to make sure that folks knew where muster points were, EMS being called, making sure we got security involved um, because they're an important piece of of our, our process. And then if we had to enact any business continuity process. So in, 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 to some degree, we did because it affected the customers down the road, being that this, this operation was going to be out of service for about three to four months. And we had to make sure that our bring our crisis management team together and see what, uh, what impact this had to the organization. So we learned a lot from that. We also learned about the standard operating procedures like what we had talked about is that what process was failed at that point. So the process being that the human behavior aspect of this came into play in in that one probably didn't have the right training because of the management of change, the way we presented this from what they used to know from the relay logic to the programmable logic and they did they understand what how the process changed just because you hit the button doesn't mean that and with this sudden loss of power that there you can just hit the button so we needed to because in the standard operating procedure it says to verify and really what that should have happened is from a 12 minute shutdown should have lasted about an hour to hour and a half where that hammer mill should have been opened up, which takes six bolts to remove the bolts. And then it's got a, a big chain fault on it. So, cause it's a, about a 1500 pound door. And with that chain fault on it, then you're able to remove the doorway. Then you wash it out, clean it out, get all that stuff out, then rebolt it and you know, button down the hatches, you're ready to go again. So that procedure wasn't done. The other was is that when the primary fan is off, we understand that we should have had the flash dryer off. And that sequence didn't work either because they weren't on the same circuit and they weren't, they weren't programmed. So we, we added some, some programming to that. We also added some fire suppression systems in there. Again, it's for, for now, or at least for this initial time, it was it's still a manual mode, but it provides a steam a ruptured desk to when you hit uh, turn an ignition source or a turn not ignition when you activate this fire suppression system it ruptures a disc in particular zones the most important zones that were impacted by this um, by this event and with the steam suppression it will put out any of the any of the fires that you have now that's it's different than putting in a like a fight system because that's going to detect light or that's going to detect, detect atmospheric changes. This one is still more of a manual mode. And so what 
what we really determined is that we did a decision analysis to take a look at what would a fight suppression system work or any other company, but anyway, something that works with atmospheric pressures or, or the light sensitivity or is programmable logic and computer programming a good option? And when you cost benefit analysis and you look at what the fail safe modes are, then we determined that as long as the primary fan is off, then the flash dryer should not be operating. So there's a sequence where they, they talk to each other. There's also a temperature gauge inside the hammer mill where if the temperature is above 170 degrees, that suggests that there's still some heat inside the hammer mill. So then the system will not operate. And so we felt like those were, were some of the significant changes that we, that we determined were relevant for pre uh, future pre prevention. Because we want to take the human decision-making, I guess decision-making skills or just the decision-making thought out of it as much as we can if we can go into the computer programming. You know, when we talk about complexity stuff. So. Yeah, summarize a couple of those. Um, you know, the, the real big one was verifying and the steps when you have a, a shutdown like this, taking the hammer mill, opening the hammer mill up, cleaning it out, and and making sure it's clean. We saw back in episode 78 of the podcast at a similar kind of explosion with Dr. Suzanne Smith. And it was an attrition mill. They had a, a choke in the attrition mill. The material started burning. They shut down the process. They cleaned out the attrition mill. The day shift came on. They switched uh, millers. The second miller ended up finishing up put the nutrition mill back together. And these are big, beefy pieces of equipment. Like you were saying, it's, you know, hard to, hard to get them open up. It's a lot of effort, a lot of work. You had to remove ducting. Um, and when they turn it back on, they didn't clean it out fully is what they, it was determined. So then they had that uh, burning ember sucked into the, the system. And they had an explosion quite similar to kind of how you're, you're mentioning it. They didn't see any, they didn't have any fugitive dust, but they'd have a, a large explosion that propagated in their case, hundreds of feet so propagate up to the the cyclones on the fourth or no the fifth story of the building, then across the dust collectors, which a couple more stories, and then end up blowing up in inside the the dust collectors. So they had a lot of flame acceleration, which which end up with a lot of silly damage. They had a little more congestion than it sounds like you guys had as well. But the the point there was on the process of cleaning out the mill. Um, I've seen this a couple times now, where that's a really important critical step. So making sure that's in your standard operating procedures doing things like turning off the flash dryer when the power goes off, having those um, linked together so that's just done automatically. Then having some redundancy in, like having a temperature sensor in the hammer mill, if it gets above a certain level, the process can't turn on until it comes down. And they talked about fire suppression and uh, what the sequence is after you actually sense. And you talked a bit about different types of sensors, different types of systems there. You mentioned um, Fike system, and there's obviously other types of explosion protection systems and even fire protection systems there as well. Those are some of the improvements that were put in place. Was there? I'm curious. Was there anything around? Because you mentioned the damage was was pretty extensive to the equipment, not necessarily the building, but you had four or five pieces of equipment damaged. The inspection ports blew off. One thing that we see is that normally when this type of explosion happens, where there's not fugitive dust, and you, I think you mentioned it, the injuries typically come from the inspection hatches blowing off the inspection ports 
Did you ever have a discussion around keeping workers clear of that when you're doing the startup? Making sure people that aren't, aren't by the inspection ports when you turn all the equipment on at the end of the day? Yeah, and then with this type of operation, it only t- there's only a couple of people uh, that that do the operate um, that operate it. But yeah, that it's important. The startup sequence needs to be, and this is system improvements too that we've implemented. Is that a startup sequence has to be communicated? It's kind of like a lockout tagout because when you then get ready to fire up the equipment, we got to make sure everybody's all clear. Um, as far as really the on the inspection ports, what we've what we really determined and found out about those is that they really aren't they weren't designed properly and or we we got a little bit um, lax on handling the these inspection ports because some of them they would bolt them bolt the lids back on but only four or five bolts instead of eight or two bolts instead of just to keep, just to, uh, you know, button it back, back on. But we also then determined that that really affects the system. When you have air being sucked into the ductwork from the outside and especially cyclones, it changes the way the cyclone is operating. So as the air is circulating around a cyclone and the heavier product, the good product should be uh, circulating downward, you know, gravity through the airlock and then pushed on through the ductwork. If you have a sucking in air into the, into the chamber of that cyclone, it changes the way it's operating and a lot more good product was going through the ductwork and we, were, we weren't as efficient of an operation. So that was part of the investigations or the analysis that we were doing is is determining where and why do we have so much product in in this pipe pipe work, and we didn't have a good clean out process. It had been a good eighteen months to maybe two years before any of that ductwork had ever been opened and visualized and inspected. So that was part of our housekeeping controls and preventative maintenance. Is that we added more to that. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's an interesting one as well. And I've I've been recently talking to some companies on different approaches there, like maybe using robots to kind of go through the ductwork and, and clean the moat every so often. Um, but certainly, a, you know, having a process where you you visually inspect and, and clean the moat is is important to do. Otherwise, um, you're going to have this sort of build up, and then even more important to that. Like you were, you were saying, you want to make sure it's operating correctly, so the material is actually flowing through, so you're not getting buildup in the cyclones or in the the uh, ductwork. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the the inspection ports. If they're not bolted on, then you're sucking sucking air through. That's going to kind of alter your system as well. Yeah, it really changed the part of the process of why we went from manual mode to automation mode was try to improve the efficiency. The way they were running, they Prior to this event, it was around a 45% efficient, and that was the maximum that they could get out of the out of the system. Once we did our deep dive analysis and and looked at you know what were some more factors involved, we then and after this event we became a 95% efficiency because we were looking at the you know the leaks in the system 
and then looking at the duct work, getting it cleaned out. I imagine over time, since they hadn't opened it up for quite a few years, is that you lose that dimension, like you had mentioned in the pipe work. So if you've got a hundred and, uh, you know, 180 degree, 360 degree view of your pipe work. And then over time, the more you shut down and lose power, it takes a heck of a lot more power to try to resuspend that product because of the gravity and you're not getting the surface, the surface flow. So eventually that 360 degree view ends up being where you've got about two or three inches of, of lost surface. So you, you don't get as much CFMs thrown through that. And the other thing we were thinking about too is these were all horizontal ducts. And so there was not that ability to have um, like on a vertical incline, which we're recommending any future install is that it needs to be on an incline so that when power is lost, then that product falls back down towards an elbow or towards the bottom of the piping and you've got you install a clean out inspection port there so you're able to take that the um, material that's flown or, or you know fallen back down you, you can you're able to clean that out or and or you then can put your brushes in and you know wire do a wire brush on a on a drill or compressed air or something like that and you're able to clean out your your ductwork so you, now we have the ability to to be able to do that so it comes from an engineering design and kind of a prevention through design approach. Yeah, I like it a lot. Really helpful to go through this. Is there any other you know, aspects of ongoing maintenance? And we're actually going to do a second podcast episode talking more about practical considerations for installing some of these systems. And just we're going to record right after this, but it'll be coming out a week after the audience is listening to this. So we can, we can go into that as well. Um, but for... For this facility, maybe I guess the best place to kind of leave off for this interview is, do you have any any recommendations or thoughts for uh, facility owners and operators that, that may be handling combustible dust that haven't had an incident or maybe they've had some fires or even some small deflagrations? What, what would be your words of advice for them to try to prevent uh, this from happening or even having something you know worse happen at their facilities, having the experience that you do, which is very valuable? So I would say let's just hi- let's focus or... Let's address and bring in the prevention through the Pentagon. So the first would be communicating. So like we mentioned about startups or shutdowns, is make sure that we're communicating to our folks that may be in the areas that may be impacted, that they know what's going on. And if the communication is an emergent event, make sure that that emergency action procedures come into play. And and it's very important that emergency action procedures have to include the worst case scenario. So as we've seen in, you know, other events over the years is that an OSHA citation comes through is because they'll say that the employer didn't practice or didn't enact any emergency action procedures, fire drills, et cetera. The worst case scenario being what's the emergency evacuation if your stairwell is gone, if there's no lights in the building. We require all of our operators to have flashlights on them at all times. Um, they have their radio with them. They have, most of them will have a cell phone. So there's some way that we can communicate with them. And they make sure that emergency action procedures are accurate or the roster count is accurate so that we don't 
have folks missing or we don't send fire department folks into areas where they don't need to be because those people aren't there. The communication also is important for any hot work. Um, we require that hot work is done in non-productive time. So we don't, if, if work has to be, if hot work has to be done, then the, then the equipment is shut down and we make sure that there's the checklist and the procedures that we're, we're following. The maintenance folks have to contact the operators and the manager when they're getting ready to do some hot work, even on an off day, to, just to make sure that we're communicating that. The second would be housekeeping. So the fugitive dust and stuff that we're talking about, that's important to address, um, but it's also the way we clean. So using compressed air as a primary broom is illegal. We do not condone that at all. And that, in fact, people will be written up for that. So anytime you would walk into a room and if you can't see, then you could rule out combustible, I mean, uh, compressed air being the, the factor and it's probably a leak in the system or it's um, the sock and the dust collector. So that's, that's important. And then we also brought in and we use the air vacuum. So have the grounding uh, hoses and their grounding cable. And we want to make sure our folks know how to use those the right way. We also prioritize piles. So the finer the material, the more explosive it is. Those take those require the specialized approach to clean them up, but we want to clean those up first. And then our preventive maintenance plans. Make sure you're cleaning inside and out, that we're working on motors, that we're working on dust collectors on a regular basis. Uh, those are important pieces of, of the puzzle. Um, making sure our standard operating work procedures are accurate. And then, like I said, preventive maintenance. We have regular down days that we're operating on. And this information all begins at the beginning. You know, make sure your new hire folks know it. And then you, we have periodic training throughout the, throughout the year, whether it's on baghouse training or it's motors training, it's housekeeping, whatever the, the Pentagon elements are so that we can try to break that chain of, of these events. Uh, thanks, Rick. That's, that's really quite valuable. Just have that list. Um, and my, I ran out of room on my piece of paper, so I didn't, I didn't write the whole summary, but um, emergency response was in there. That's critical. Thinking about what's going to happen if you don't have sprinklers or if you don't have power or light or radios go down or, uh, you know, worst case scenario, stairwells are down. There's, there's uh, floors that have been uh, ruptured and, and that's, it's not a, it's not a pipe dream. I mean, at Imperial Sugar, that's exactly what happened. They had giant holes in the floors. They had no stairwells. Um, Diddy and Milling, same thing, and and I just did a live training inside the Dust Safety Academy um, last week on on some grain milling incidents, including Diddy, and, and um, shared some of the quotes from the the different workers that were there. And it was things like had to you know climb across the the roof trusses that were crumbled and on the floor below to get out of the building, or crawl through the rubble from the, the lab techs. You know, if if you have a, a large secondary explosion, it's you're you, your your normal fire drills may not uh, prepare you for that, so it's a bit about thinking about that. Um, and then you mentioned a lot of other great ones, and that's where my where I ran out of room, so I don't have a chance to sum summarize all those. But maintenance programs, uh, management change, hot work, really all the elements of process safety, and kind of going through those. And where are we at? And if you don't have anything on one of the elements, if you don't have anything a program around uh, management change around hot work, then that's you know a critical area to identify. 
and and start to fill that gap. And then if you look at it and you do have something, but it's not enough, then you know you can kind of dig in deeper and and be in this process of continual improvement and learning, which you obviously are. I can tell from your your uh, you know your career progression. And you, you mentioned you had you had a couple of days off when you were back in healthcare, so you you took that and tried to figure out. Okay, well, what's the what's the next thing I want to learn? Um, I'm happy that you you ended up in, in combustible dust safety at the, at the end of the day and are here now to, to share your experience with the audience. Yeah. Thank you. I, you know, I think the, the biggest thing to keep in mind, which I believe the, the industry is, is going to get there. It's process safety management. We know that we have to do it for hazardous chemicals and dust is a chemical. You know, it's a, it's a particulate, um, but it's not enforced to the extent, the extent that other chemicals and you know, like anhydrous ammonia, though. But I think it, it needs to get to that point, and possibly it does within certain organizations after they have an event. So unfortunately, something has to occur and really hit home for things to change. And from a proactive standpoint, there's a there's a heck of a lot we could do before it gets to that point. Yeah, I think that's probably a whole other, a whole other topic. Everyone, it's, it's kind of split. You have people that that believe in process safety management as being the solution and that are heavily implementing it, and that would be the people that are being proactive. Then you have, you know, folks that as soon as you say PSM, they say, "Oh, we're not oil and gas. We're not high hazard material," until they, you know, until they. Till they blow up their hammer mill, or they, you know, you you blow up a piece of equipment, and you go, oh, yeah, that's okay. Let's start. Let's start talking about the sequence of operations that we use to start our equipment back up. Um, it's almost like we start at, you know, where we're at, and we're working towards our way. We're working our way towards full PSM as an approach for combustible dust safety. I think we'll be there in ten years because we'll have to. Uh, and I'm almost, you know, part of my my process with this podcast and sharing this information is can we accelerate that timeline to start to adopt it sooner? Um, but that's a little bit of personal opinion, a little bit of personal experience on your side. Um, and that's probably a broader discussion that we'll continue having throughout the, throughout the community and throughout the uh, facilities that we're operating in. So with that, Rick, I want to say thank you. Um, we are going to have Rick on for another podcast episode talking more about specific implementation. So, you know, you come up with a plan to install type of, uh, maybe explosion protection or fire protection or um, equipment systems. What does that look like from a, an operator perspective, from a, a health safety perspective, actually getting that equipment, installing it in your facility? Again, these are really helpful because they're sort of the inside looking out um, from someone has experience doing it. And, and I appreciate uh, appreciate Rick uh, continuing to, to do that. So we'll have him on the podcast in the next episode. But for this episode, I want to say, Rick, thank you again for your time. And I look forward to, to talking again soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate this. And, and if anybody has any questions, they can reach out to me and I'm glad to help them out. Awesome. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Rick Smith. We're talking about lessons learned from a corn milling deflagration and explosion incident that he was involved with. So we went with through some of Rick's background. We talked about his history and how he got into uh, EHS, environmental health and safety, how he eventually made it into the world of, of combustible dust safety and and uh, working with a, a company in the, the food production area on this on this area. We talked about how health and safety managers can do something similar, some of the resources that they can use to, uh, to go down that track. Then we jumped into this um, incident that he was involved with 
Uh, fortunately, nobody was injured, but it was large enough to destroy equipment and, and, you know, large enough to have caused injury had it maybe been at a different time of day or even, you know, some, some things gone slightly different. We talked through what the process looked like. And the short summary is that the hammer mill, which is sort of the central grinding operation, when power went off, was still getting material fed through to it. And since the vacuum was off because the fan had turned off, also had material um, coming back down the line and, and sort of, for lack of a better word, you know, stuffed the hammer mill full of material. Then when they fired it back up, they had deflagrations that propagated through it several pieces of equipment, um, some explosions as well. So the interesting point was really, well, there are a lot of interesting points, but one of the ones I found the most interesting was the team that Rick, or the process that Rick and his team went through um, and the team there at the company went through to identify what happened. Also some important things like, you know, remember turning the utilities off, um, bring in the, the uh, fire department, you know, making sure all the fires are out. So what do you do immediately after emergent response? Then also then the longer time. Okay, how long is it going to take us to get up and running? What's our business continuity plan for our existing clients? And, and you know, what can we do there? Operating all those in place and then, you know, diving into, okay, well, what did we learn from this and how do we avoid it in the future? Um, and and Rick hit on so many points there that uh, that I had to throw away a pen that ran out and, and eventually filled my paper. <laughs> so I do want to say thank you to him coming on the podcast if you want to connect with rick we'll have um, his email or um, a way that you can connect with him in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com 68 and this is a really important type of incident we talked about these um you know grain milling explosions corn flour wheat um before on the podcast with dr suzanne smith we've done trainings inside the dust safety academy talking about um, some of the lessons learned there as well and it's important to to identify them and to identify these lessons learned and make sure they're implemented as part of a, a more broader safety approach. Um, and that's where we'll be heading. So I'll say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have, stay safe um, and have a productive week ahead. And I just want to say thank you to everyone for what they're doing to make these industries safer around the world that are handling combustible dust. Mm-hmm.